0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the PALS podcast. Coming to you uh, remotely again, just myself over here and my pal Ricky uh, called in. We had a guest on the line this week, Dr. Dylan Kane. He is a doctor of internal medicine who's currently doing his fellowship in infectious diseases. He's currently at Mount Sinai Hospital. Um, A lot of his attention has been focused towards COVID-19 and what has been going on, trying to find a cure, trying to figure out... Anything we can do to improve our situation and um, you know get to the bottom of this? He shared a lot of insights, a lot of important information. Kind of went into what was fact, what's fiction, um, misinformation being circulated in the news. It was very informative and just an overall interesting conversation. Give it a listen, share it with anyone you think it'll bring some value to or some insights to. We'd really appreciate it. I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor for the episode, Ilberry and Goose, our good friends down in London, Ontario. Ilberry makes some amazing products. Uh, I'm wearing this sweater right now. Super comfortable. Perfect for uh, cuddling up on the couch and reading a nice book during uh, during this self-isolation. They, make, uh, they got coffee. They make candles, apothecary products, all types of clothing. Uh, just a fantastic company, guys. Right now is the most important time for us to help out wherever we can with our Canadian local businesses. Ilberry and Goose have a website where they ship across Canada. I believe across North America as well. We'll link their uh, website in the description, and we'll share some stuff on our social media so you guys know where to find them and check them out. Truly unique, entirely Canadian. All right, let's get into this. Let's go. Guys, so, so everything sounds kind of good on my end. Um, I mean, I just was recording everything, but I guess we'll just kind of jump right into it because that was kind of a good segue, Dylan, and I think that um, okay. to kind of kick things off here, I guess uh, you're you're a doctor of internal medicine. Uh, what what exactly yes. does internal medicine encompass? So you want to give us a little background?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I've finished my internal medicine training now
2: and,
1: and licensed in that, and then I'm just... A couple of months shy of finishing my infectious disease fellowship, and um, so internal medicine is kind of all of the um, medical specialties within the hospital, so uh, not the surgical ones, but basically everything else. And from that, um, breaks into all of the different subspecialties: cardiology, um, uh, endocrinology, gastroenterology, and infectious disease is one of those. And um, so after I finished my internal medicine training, and um, then I've gone on uh, to do a fellowship with an infectious disease. Um, yeah, so, really focused on uh, things like this, although we were hoping it wouldn't wouldn't uh, come during our training, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's just bad timing.
2: Mean. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I um, think um, um, yeah. it was inevitable um, at some point, but uh, I think a lot of people were hoping that it would not be in the near future.
2: So, yeah, definitely. Dylan, so I wanted to ask why infectious diseases like what you know we've got we had the shawl on here a couple weeks ago we've got some other friends who are doctors but you're probably actually no you are the only person that i guess i've ever spoken to in infectious diseases what kind of drew you to that specific part of uh of medicine yeah so i i first
1: kind of um was really interested in the immune system kind of way back when um in high school and even and even kind of uh, early high school um, just the intricacies of the immune system and um, obviously infections are kind of one of the major things and um, that the immune system is important for the reason it was designed um, so uh, that's kind of one thing that started me into it but then the thing that really kind of sold me on infectious disease is it's it's the only aspect of um, medicine where you can really cure something and so you can achieve cure within surgery and, and through, um, fixing things technically, but the only thing that you can really take a pill for and cure something is an infection. Um, and for me, that was just really exciting, really interesting. Um, and it's, it's an area of medicine that I think gets less attention than it probably deserves, uh, with the exception of right now. Um, but, uh, up till now, it's really something that, um, a lot of people maybe don't know a ton about in the in the lay public. Um, and so uh, it's really an area that I was quite interested in from that perspective. And specifically, my major interests are actually in, in global uh, health and tropical medicine. So the weird and wonderful um, coming from uh, less uh, advantageous areas of the world. Um, and uh, the majority of those problems and those um, uh, issues um, related to health care are related to infections. Um, and so that was one
0: of the things that really just told me so doing the fellowship now does it involve um, a lot of research based application or is it more like practical like you're in hospitals uh, studying disease like what um, what side is it more geared towards or is it a little bit of both
2: yeah, so
1: the fellowship is um, almost exclusively um, a hospital-based clinical work, um, but there's lots of options to do research, um, and it's heavily encouraged at centres, especially Toronto, Um, So I've been doing a lot of um, research throughout because my interest um, is in um, translational science, so taking uh, basic science, bench science into clinical practice, that kind of gap um, where we have scientists and then we have clinicians, but there's sometimes a disconnect between those two. And so in the long term, I'm hoping to end up in that kind of field Um, and uh, so that's um one of the things um that's quite interesting uh, within infectious diseases is that ability to scan um, bridge that gap um, but the majority of our fellowship is clinical so we spend um like most of our time uh within the hospital system um, so in the first year of the fellowship uh, we spend nine months uh of the 12 months on uh, clinical service seeing uh, patients with a whole variety of infections in the hospital um, and then uh, we spend a variety of months um, doing other um, parts of uh, infectious disease. Um, so one of them uh, this year being infection control, which I'm, I'm doing right now. Um, we, I'm spending two months on that. So I spent a month in January and then a month now. Um, and then there's other aspects, public health, um, which we're supposed to have next, um, in the next month. Um, but it's uh, up in the air right now in terms of where, where we're going to end up, um, depending on uh, how busy things get.
0: Wow. So, okay. so you're in infection control now. For, so January and now, uh, had this not happened, was there just was it just like um, focusing on stuff that you're like diseases that you're aware of? And now that this has popped up, have they kind of repurposed your time to focus on COVID nineteen at all, or is what's your? Yeah.
1: So actually, even when I started on infection control on January sixth, um, the first task I was given was. Um, uh, from the infection control head was tell me about this new uh wuhan pneumonia um because at that time we didn't have the name of it um oh, wow. so i've been following this uh for a long time now um and then obviously more recently become much more active in it to the point where now this is the only thing that i'm doing um, and i think that's true of almost all infectious disease physicians and across the country, um, where. It, Everyone I know um, has stopped all other research, um, all other work, um, and this is the only thing that's that's on the um, plate right now. Normally, infection control deals with a lot of stuff that's that's not quite as glamorous, um, so preventing um, hospital-acquired infections, so things like you may have heard about, about Clostridium difficile um, and other... Sorry, um, sorry, sorry to cut yeah. what was that you just said, the one they said uh, so, you might have heard of? Oh, Clostridium difficile um, got some news attention. It's, it's a type of antibiotic-resistant bacteria that can cause diarrhea in patients who have gotten antibiotics uh, in the past. Um, mm-hmm. And so caused a, a lot of um, media attention um, over the last uh, about 15 years or so because it's been uh, increasing as we use more and more antibiotics. Um, so we take time to try and prevent those. Um, there's lots of education about hand hygiene and making sure that people are washing their hands uh, when interacting with patients so less glamorous stuff but extremely important stuff within the hospital um, but now everything's changed and um, so uh, the the head of infection control um, at the hospital in which is Mount Sinai Hospital. Uh, she spends all day dealing with um, uh, with uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, it's pretty much the only only thing that's on her plate right now, um, and it would be kind of the entire day is just meetings about uh, coordinating uh,
2: what to do about this. So, uh, so I, I wanted to ask. So now we're we started discussing COVID-19, and obviously that's going to be a big part of this discussion. So when it originally kind of came and got attention, I know obviously it started in Wuhan, but a lot of people compared it to a seasonal flu, just a little bit more contagious. Yeah. I wanted to ask, what are some of the similarities to the seasonal flu and what are some of the major differences to the seasonal flu? Because a lot of people who think they have a flu actually have the coronavirus and then vice versa too. Some people think they might have had coronavirus and it's just a regular flu. Yeah, so I think that the
1: similarities are really the the initial clinical picture and and just the initial clinical picture. So um, uh, when people develop the flu, most of the time they'll have what we call upper respiratory tract symptoms. So sore throat, runny nose, um, they might have a little bit of a headache, and then they're going to get systemic symptoms of fever, uh, sometimes shortness of breath, feeling aches and pains. Those symptoms are very similar to the symptoms that we see with um, uh, COVID. Um, so there is slight differences, um, but for the average person, it's it's not possible to tell from clinically alone the difference between the two. Now where the differences, and that's pretty much where the they end in terms of the similarities. Um, otherwise, they're very different. Um, and I think a lot of people early on really underestimated this virus um, by... Um, Saying that it's no different than the flu, and certainly the flu um, is, is a cause of significant uh, death worldwide uh, and every winter. Um, but this is very different in the fact that it's the rate and speed that it spread. So it's about twice as infectious um, uh, as the flu. Uh, we measure that with um, something called an R naught. Um, so if anyone's seen contagion recently, I was I just going to say that anyone who knows that yeah. is,
2: is because of contagion.
1: Yeah, so um, yeah. So she goes through it, uh, but it's basically how easy it is to spread um, from one person to another. And so if one person has it, uh, the flu will infect just over one other person. So a little bit more than what you'd um, need to, to not have it go anywhere, um, but not enough to kind of go uh, quite as widespread into the community. Now, the estimates um, for COVID uh, place it around 2.7, but in highly concentrated environments, it can actually go much higher. So the initial outbreak in Wuhan. Um, the r naught was actually around 3.9, um, 3.8, 3.9, um, so it was significantly higher. And even on in some uh, isolated environments, like one of the cruise ships, the Diamond Princess, um, uh, the r naught measured on on there before they quarantined everyone on the ship uh, was as high as 11 at points in time, uh, which is very, very uh, concerning. Um However, with with isolations uh, and physical distancing on the Diamond Princess, they were able to get that number below one. And once it's below one, then the infection will die off. Um, So that's basically the goal is to um, lower that number by physically limiting our interactions. Um, from people, uh, and the same thing happened in Wuhan, um, and with their, uh, drastic physical isolation that they imposed, they immediately kind of dropped that number down, uh, first to 1.26, um, from one, from the study of the modeling from Wuhan. And then, uh, with further kind of quarantine of people, they dropped it down to 0.32. And that's why you see the cases in China have basically almost um, completely gone away. So most of their wow. small number of cases now are imported from other countries um, rather than locally acquired.
0: That's So then just staying on that topic then to kind of jump to something more local, um, yeah. where does Toronto stand right now? Because obviously on a daily basis, we hear the news reports of new cases and we see the numbers jumping uh, and like Health Canada, they, they – published the reports that had an update today as of the like total cases in Canada. But where do we stand in terms of that scale? Are we closer to the 2.7, the 3.9,
1: 1.26? Yeah, so it's not it's not clear. Um, you can really only measure that in retrospect. Um, okay. so we don't know right now. But really what we're looking at is the rate of growth. That's going to be the thing that's most important for us to look at. Um, uh, That's going to be the thing that's really telling us if the isolations that we're putting in place now are working or whether we need to become even more stringent. Um, So the rate of growth um, across uh, Canada um, has remained relatively steady, hopefully slowing down. uh, And certainly certain provinces, um, so in particular British Columbia, has seen quite a bit of slow uh, in their growth they were probably a little bit earlier to implement these physical distancing um, measures uh, as they were one of the first provinces to have kind of a lot of severe um, cases coming in. Um, other provinces have been slower to adapt to that. Um, so Quebec was probably a little bit slower um, to, to pick up on that. Uh, and they're seeing quite high spikes in their cases. Um, Ontario, we're still having spikes in the cases. It's a little bit hard to tell, too, because the other thing you have to remember is um, the reporting of the cases per day are going to be biased by how many how many samples are processed that day. So we had a big backlog in Ontario um, of um, tests that had been done but not uh, reported out yet. Um, and the microbiologists and the diagnostic people have been working kind of round the clock to try and improve the efficiency of that testing. And as more of those tests get reported out, they're inevitably gonna cause the numbers to go up at a faster rate, but they're not necessarily meaning that they're all new cases. Um, So some of those people have been tested as many as seven days before um, and just getting reported out. So we do have to kind of look at things day to day, but also keep in mind that there's gonna be fluctuations that are um, are gonna change uh, the numbers and the way it's reported that aren't actually necessarily reflected in the
0: community. Just okay. another sorry, Rick, another question on that. So you mentioned uh, Wuhan. It got the number down to uh, 0.32, and that the cases yeah. have started to subside. Um, is but when it goes down, is is it when it gets to that point, is that mean it subsided and it can't keep tr- uh, transmitting it and and kind of growing, or can it re- reoccur if the measures don't stay in place? So I think if we start to lower yeah. the 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 growth, if you will, and start to flatten the curve, as everyone's saying. But let's say Quebec doesn't and, and Ontario does well. Can we still be exposed to it and can it re- like kind of reoccur and start growing again?
1: For sure. And that's actually something that I um, really wanted to touch on um, is in terms of what the general strategy should be. Um, there are many different strategies that have been adopted by different countries around the world, um, and, and several of them have been successful um, in Asian countries so far. And we're just starting to see Italy having some success after so much hardship, um, uh, as its cases are, are finally slowing down in terms of the percent of new cases. Um, but the, the thing to really remember is that right now, um, our goal is to basically hit this virus as hard as we can by physically distancing ourselves as much as possible. And um, we have to prove that we can slow and stop the virus from spreading and um, to ourselves and also to um stop this exponential rise that we're currently on and where where the doubling time is only three to four days right now. And um, so today we have uh just around ten thousand cases. Um at the current rate, we'd expect that to be 20,000 uh, within about four days. Um, and then 40,000 and 80,000 it goes on and on. Um, so we really want to stop that exponential growth because otherwise we get to the point where our healthcare system cannot keep up with the cases. Um, once and if we're able to get that under control with very aggressive measures, Um, things like some of the things we've done, but we might need more aggressive measures. Um, Then we can start to think about slowly opening up some of those um, uh, restrictions to allow things um, like visiting family members, to allow things like uh, businesses that might be more critical to our economy to repopulate. Um, Then we need to keep a very close eye on things. Because we're not out of the woods at that point. China is not out of the woods at this point. And if China lets its guard down too much, you'll see a second spike in cases there. Um, uh, They're definitely still vulnerable because the vast majority of their population does not have any immunity to this virus yet. So they've done a really good job, and they're slowly relaxing their um, restrictions, which is appropriate, but they need to watch, because if the cases start to climb again, um, then they need to immediately reimpose those restrictions. Um, And that's the the theory that's been put forth um, out of the Imperial College of London. Um, They had a modelling paper that basically looked at the different restrictions that we can put in uh, how those will affect the projected number of cases and how um, physical distancing uh, will help and then uh, they also talked about the the fact that we're going to have to go back and forth in and out of this physical distancing for potentially some time but i think the message for the average person is that we need to be extremely aggressive over the next six eight weeks with our physical distancing to prevent this initial wave from overwhelming us. Um, Because if it overwhelms us, then the healthcare system could collapse and then we're in a very bad spot um, for a long time to come. But if we can keep things under control, then we can start to think about how we can make it more achievable for long-term life uh, for Canadians.
2: Okay. Dylan, I had a question. You mentioned that there's going to be a certain point that if we don't kind of, I guess, flatten the curve that the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. Is there a number internally that the hospitals say, like, if we hit, you know, 20K, we're we're done? Or is there a number that internally amongst you guys that discuss that if this number hits, that's when we're in big trouble? Because right now, if I'm not mistaken, the hospitals are still okay. It's not that they're, you know, jam-packed like in Spain and Italy and there's people, you know, being seen in the hallways yeah
1: so yeah you're exactly right so right now we're still um our hospitals are doing really well right now um so there's no immediate problem the worry is that if we continue up this rate that we will get easily to a point where we become overwhelmed it's really about the um new patients coming in per day and then how quickly we can move people through the hospital to clear up space um That's dependent on many things. It depends on how many sick people come in versus how many moderately sick versus how many people are still able to be at home. So many people with this virus will not actually need hospitalization. Um, About 85% of people will not need hospitalization. Um, So... The the, Really, the number that we care about are the numbers of people that need hospitalization, the number of people that need ICU care, so um, mechanical ventilation um, and life support, and then the number of people that die. Um, And so uh, those are the the three things that are going to overwhelm the hospital is if we're just having a massive volume of patients, and in particular, a massive volume of patients that need intensive care. um, So they need a ventilator. Um, As you've probably seen from the news, um, that's the the main um, uh, thing that that Trump keeps talking about, that uh, Cuomo keeps talking about from New York, is the lack of ventilators. Um, Because the problem is, if these patients um, have respiratory failure um, and they're able to get a ventilator, there's a good chance that they'll be able to live through this disease. But if there are no ventilators left and they need a ventilator, then they will die. Um, and so uh, it's really a point where you can't temporize it with anything else um, and so the mortality rate will start to climb very significantly if and when we get to that point and um, we're hoping that by flattening the curve enough we can keep this going on for longer but at the same time People who have got the disease initially will have come off and no longer needed those ventilators, so that we can now reuse them for other yeah, patients. Recycle them, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's that's the kind of strategy. Yeah.
0: In regards to the ventilators, is has there been any indication that there? Is some relief coming? Is, are any companies repurposing? Like, I either see a bunch of them. I mean, a buddy of ours has repurposed his uh, his upholstery factory to make masks. Do you see? Is there any companies that are kind of trying to repurpose their supply chain to produce ventilators? Is there any any indication that there might be more down, coming down the pipe at all?
2: Or even yeah. has China has China maybe sent some of the rest of the world some of their ventilators because they must have had a good amount, right? Yeah. So, so there's a, yeah, the supply chain has been a big problem. Um, the, the
1: major problem with getting more ventilators is that right now, um, we're competing against, um, the U S, um, for those same problems. Um, and so, uh, it's the same issue with, with masks and other personal protective equipment for the hospitals is that, um, the U.S. Is, is requiring so much of these things um, that if they're produced externally, we're having to try and uh, compete for those um, same things, except the U.S. is ahead of us and they're going through this first. Um, and so there's definitely been a lot of push from the government to try and get more ventilators, to try and get more masks, um, to try and get more uh, supplies that we need. Um, but it's not always very easy. Um, the, the really hope that we have is that things will stay OK in China and that China will continue to produce large volumes of um, things like mass uh, to provide for the rest of the world. Uh, However, that could change if we see another outbreak in China, Um, uh, and that could be uh, quite concerning, especially for mask production, Um, uh, because right now we're hoping to get a lot of masks um, from China uh, over the next uh, coming weeks. Uh, In terms of ventilators, um, there are some companies that are repurposing their manufacturing for um, to produce ventilators. but. As you can imagine, they're extremely intricate machines um, that have a lot of fine um, details to them, and, and uh, it's, it's hard to produce um, uh, them quickly and easily. Um, and I'm not completely aware of, of the uh, companies in Canada that are trying to. I'm not sure if any, any are producing ventilators in Canada. I know that's ongoing in the U.S., um, but we, I'm not, I'm not the probably the best person to talk to, but the government is looking quite closely at this, um, and trying to talk to anyone who's interested. So, if any companies, uh, you guys know of, um, that have the uh, wherewithal and so know done. how to make it, and um, the government is extremely eager to talk to those people. Uh, similarly, with mass, um, and I'll just uh, I'll take a little side note just to talk about mass um, because a lot of people are donating mass, which is wonderful. Um, but I just wanted to kind of highlight the ones that are the most helpful to us. Um, so there are um, Two major types of masks that we use in the hospital, Um, one being surgical masks. Um, So these are the kind of main ones that loop over your ear. Uh, And the other being um, uh, what we call N95 masks. Um, And they're much um, more protective. Uh, I see a lot of people in the public wearing the N95 masks. They're the ones usually with the yellow straps. They They are more circular in shape, and they fit very closely to your mouth so that if you're wearing them, and for a long period of time, they're quite uncomfortable. They're only needed in very specific situations um, that only happen in the hospital. So the majority of the time we can wear a surgical mask. But when we're putting a breathing tube down someone's throat and we create like kind of a, a, an environment where the virus can spread in a different way. And that's when we need the N95 mask. The N95 masks are the ones that we are most concerned about not having enough of. um, And that's probably one of the scariest things um, for the physicians on the front line, like the eMERGE doctors, like the intensive care doctors, um, is running out of these masks. Um, And so uh, we're really trying to... um, conserve them in every way possible within the hospital at the same time trying to engage companies who are able to produce them but again they're, they're quite complicated to make um these special masks um, but also uh, we would um, implore any public members who maybe bought these masks before and um, they're extremely important for us and and they're not the type of masks that are needed for the general public so we'd really encourage people to
2: donate them if they have them and um, they the N95 masks. Yeah. So basically, any average Joe walking the streets, the surgical mask is good enough. If they have an N95, they should donate it to the hospital.
1: Correct? Yeah,
2: yeah. Okay. So any unused N95
1: masks um, are extremely helpful for us are, at this point. Yeah.
2: Are they reusable?
1: they are not reusable so we are we are working on ways um to extend their use within the hospital and people around the world are looking at ways to sterilize them so that they can be reused Um, but at this point in time Uh, we are not uh, reusing them. Um, Certain other countries are getting very close or maybe have even started, uh, including places like New York, are repurposing them, so they they sterilize them and reuse them. Um, But I'm not sure uh, if that's widespread yet. Um, Yeah.
0: So the N95 specifically... do you know why there's such a big shortage? Obviously, demand will, will create that. But are they? Do you know if they're manufactured in North America? They produce worldwide, specifically in China. Um, and obviously, if they yeah, are so in China, like that, I'm assuming going the supply chain, they're going down. Must have had a big impact if that was the case.
1: For sure, yeah. So, so the the supply chain's been quite disrupted. Um, the normal, and again, uh, this is. Slightly outside of my area of expertise, but something that I've been trying to keep up uh, to date on. But it sounds like the majority of the supply chain funnels from the factories in China, uh, where the majority of them are produced, and and then into companies like uh, 3M, um, which is one of the major companies that produces these uh, in the U.S. and within Canada, uh, and then distributes to the hospitals from there. They're a mask that we don't wear very often normally. So there's only a couple infections that we need to wear them for, um, things like tuberculosis. Um, and so they're not ones that we normally use. Um, and so they are not ones that we've stockpiled huge volumes of um, for normal use. Most hospitals did have pandemic preparedness um, uh, warehouses where they kept extra stuff um, for this exact reason. Uh, but they're obviously uh, being used up uh I think the most recent I read is we're using them at about six times the normal rate. Um, uh, so we're going through them quite quickly and we haven't even gotten to the kind of uh, big surge um, uh, of cases that we're expecting to come over the next uh, three weeks or so. Uh, so... Uh, We're quite concerned about the supply of them. We're really hoping that people will uh, develop safe systems to reuse them, um, to basically clean them sufficiently uh, without damaging the mask So that still works. Uh, But we're not quite at that point. um, And so
2: that's, that's where we are right now.
0: On that note, too, with with them coming from China and now you you made the point that it's gotten the the number down to approximately that three point two in terms of like the growth has has come down with with them getting to that point where, okay, uh, they're in a good spot, I guess better than they were before. You made that comment about letting your guard down. Is there a fear that they might just say, okay, we're we're in the clear. Let's get the factories going again to help the world. And that might put them back at risk. And are they putting any measures? Like, are they easing people back into society? Are they only opening up essential businesses? Like, what has been their plan to, to kind of, like, acclimate people back into society and get their economy moving and, and all of that?
1: Yeah. I think the one thing working to our advantage is, is the um, – uh that part of the world um so asia uh went through this uh to a certain degree not to the same extent but with sars back in 2002 2003 2004 um and uh countries um like south korea like singapore like hong kong know this firsthand um, from people within their system who have died um uh, from these diseases so we're, we're worried, but I, I think that I have faith that the that the governments there are taking this extremely seriously um, and that they uh, if they are tracking this very seriously, that if they start to see cases rise as they start to open things up that they will close down again. Um, we know that China can close down extremely quickly um, and has ability to um, uh, control things in a way that we don't have here. Um, And I think that does give them an advantage um, should they see cases start to climb. And so uh, I think that's reassuring. Uh, But there is still always fear that um, if the production line um, starts to decline, um, it's going to cause major problems uh, for not just us, but also um, for our neighbors to the south. Um, the current predictions are that uh, the U.S. will need 2.5 billion masks over the next wow. few months, um, oh and God. so uh, you can imagine that even if a company is producing uh, at full capacity, uh, that will quickly get eaten up um, uh, by places like New York, uh, New Orleans, uh, uh, Carolina, um, uh, sorry California, uh, and other places within the U.S. So, wow.
0: well, since, uh, you're, since you touched on the on the U.S. Um, believe you mentioned that you, you've been dealing with some people kind of in different parts of the world um, and we can see that the, the U.S. has seen a big spike in their cases and um, obviously very scary to see that. But is there like is there specific cities that have been hit harder, like obviously New York, major metropolitan city Has California been as bad Have other big dense cities uh, been affected as much?
1: Yeah, so so the hotspots within the U.S. right now is, for sure, New York um, and the surrounding area. So the vast majority of cases have been within New York City and then the surrounding uh, suburb areas, um, uh, including New Jersey. Um, But many other parts of the U.S. have been hit quite hard as well. So. Seattle had a big outbreak uh, really early. Um, they're still having many cases ongoing, uh, but it has slowed down a bit there. Yeah, but they were probably the first place in the U.S. Um, to have a really big problem, um, especially a few really large outbreaks within their long-term care facilities, um, which, as you can imagine, to the patients in those areas uh, have extremely high mortality rates. Um, and so we're quite devastating um, as many as 30% of some of the long-term care term care facilities, um, uh, were, are now, um, deceased, um, which is, uh, awful. Oh. Um, other places that have been hit quite hard is California. Um, California has done a, a really good job, um, acting early. and um, even before they had, um, recommendations, um, from the, uh, federal government to, uh, close down, um, restrict their citizens. Um, and so we're seeing some slowing there. Um, the other place that doesn't get a lot of attention and but has been unfortunately hit extremely hard is new orleans um they they are an area of the the country that's that's quite poor um had a, a lacked a lot of resources that that other states um, and other uh, cities have had and the mortality rate in new orleans is actually the highest within the country um and so uh, it's been really hard um for physicians working there um so the course I was just on um it was actually physicians from around the world um were down in Peru before and so I am talking with them uh, pretty much on a daily basis um and one of them's uh, an ID physician uh, in New Orleans uh, and she was just talking about how how challenging it is and um, because many of the patients are dying there um and there's very little we can offer them and um, so uh, there's a lot of talk about treatments um but um just to to go there for a second there are no uh, treatments uh, that we have any evidence work right now um so despite what you'll hear in the general news despite what you'll hear from um uh, certain uh, politicians tweets uh, <laughs> none of the uh, none of the uh, medications that people are using have any evidence um beyond in vitro studies for their efficacy. So there are small studies in people, but they all have major methodological flaws that basically render them uninterpretable. You cannot tell if they have any efficacy. There are many studies that are ongoing right now. So over the upcoming months, we will certainly find out if these drugs work. Um, uh, and we're really encouraging people to enroll within these trials. We have several um, going on across, uh, across the country. Um, but I think um, the the issue is that with all acute viruses, we do not have good treatment options and um, whether it's influenza, the common cold and um, SARS, MERS, um, which is the middle Eastern respiratory um, syndrome, very similar to SARS and to uh, COVID. Um, none of the treatments work well. The only types of viruses that we can treat well are the chronic ones. So hepatitis C, HIV, uh, those kind of viruses. Um, and so Uh, I worry that the treatments will only work well in a more preventative capacity. So early treatment of people who are otherwise well or prevention within healthcare workers and other high-risk populations. And so those studies are ongoing. Um, but I really caution people from using these drugs outside of a trial. Um, and, and this has definitely been echoed within the entire Canadian system, um, is that we should not be prescribing these medications without studying them because they do have side effects. And um, if they're of unknown benefit and we know they have harm, then maybe we shouldn't be prescribing them, um, uh, which is always hard for physicians because it's our natural tendency to want to help. Uh, but sometimes the only help we can provide is is supportive care. Um, and that's
2: where we're at right now. On the- I-, I wanted to ask, is, sorry, George, is um, I believe ibuprofen or Advil, is, <laughs> uh, I read somewhere that, that taking that can... Like, the virus thrives off that. Is that true? So
1: it's a really um, interesting area of controversy. Uh, There's a lot of um, fake news, and my suspicion is that this is also one. Um, So a lot of the re-reporting of that um, is is not substantiated on any evidence and was actually um, fabricated. Uh, The initial reports came from a a French minister, so not even a physician, uh, who said that they noticed a correlation. There's no study, there's no data to back that up. Um it that was just someone's observation that went viral. Uh it, we have to be really careful with those observations because we know that if people have fevers and they feel unwell, they're going to start taking ibuprofen. But it's not necessarily that they're um it's making them worse. It's just self-selecting for patients who are already feeling worse. Um, And so that might be why they noticed that observation. We have no evidence that that is the case, um, that ibuprofen does cause it. So there was a lot of confusion. The WHO said, don't give it. And now they've reversed and said, give it as you would. Um, There is something to be said for the fact that um, for some people, they need ibuprofen or related medications. So Advil or related medications. um, So people who have just had, heart attacks and need their baby aspirin or people who have a rheumatologic disease like rheumatoid arthritis and need their, um, uh, naproxen to help with their pain control. And those people should continue their medications. But if you say developed knee pain, um, today, it might be better to take Tylenol because it's going to work probably just as well. And, uh, we, we may be, have this trend. Um, my suspicion is that it's all fake, um, but uh, in the absence of any evidence, um, if you don't need to take it, then don't take it.
0: Yeah. O- on that but note I would have said
1: that before this, before this happened. I would have said the same thing. If you don't need to take medication, then you shouldn't be taking it to begin with. So.
0: On that note on, on the medicine, and going, jumping farther back, you said about the stuff that's been circulating, fake news, whatever you want to use. Um, if I'm not mistaken, azithromycin is one of them. Uh, is that the one that they're saying that might? Is that the malaria drug they're saying might have a, an effect? And, and is that is there any substantiation to that? Those tests and, and um...
1: yeah. So, so that and that um, uh, evidence comes from um, from France, um, from a small group that's quite quite actually well known for rocket seal work. Um, I feel like everything's uh, uh, coming from France. Eh? <laughs> Fake yeah. news is France is a um, central central location. I'm, I'm really. I'm really concerned about interpreting that study for a couple reasons. Um, so, uh, I will note that several days before that study started, the lead author for that study, um, uh, uh, the, um, uh published a report, um, that basically said that, that, um, COVID is, is no bigger deal than influenza, um, and said, why are we making such a big deal about this? Then several days later started a trial looking at treatment for COVID. Um, which makes me really concerned about uh, how the trial was set up um, and just the everything behind it um, to begin with. Then when reading the, the trial, it's an extremely small trial um, with a lot of fundamental problems in the way it was set up um, that make it uh, basically you should not it should not interpret it in any way because you can't interpret the data. Um, the way it's set up it's just so, uh, biased um uh, in terms of how they organized it um so that's the study that that got the attention of the the u.s president of, of trump um and that's the one that he retweeted um we strongly discourage people from taking it um together without being uh, administered by a doctor um i'm sure i'm um, uh, i know some people have uh got it from friends or from other places and um, because the drugs especially in culmination can cause a fatal arrhythmias um and so uh really if you're not um taking it cautiously and getting monitored uh it can cause quite a bit of problems uh and there have been several deaths from overdoses uh, one within the u.s that i know about uh two within nigeria um of people who um, managed to get their hands on the medications and then died from it uh, so we have to be very careful, especially because, um, there's no good evidence that it works saying that there is evidence, um, in cells that, that it doesn't inhibit this virus and people are looking quite closely at it in a more rigorous way to tell if it works. But until we have that evidence, um, I don't think it's a good idea to take the medication. The other Unintended problem of that, too, is that the medication, so hydroxychloroquine in particular, is a very useful medication for other diseases. Um, uh, People who have rheumatoid arthritis or uh, lupus, um, it's extremely helpful for them to control their symptoms of their disease. Right now, we have massive shortages across the world and within Canada such that these patients can't get their own medication, um, uh, which is really awful um, because other people have have basically prescribed it all away and now we know something that that would work for these patients we can't get
0: them wow so on that note you and I guess the general term here is or the general uh theme here is about news circulating and reports that don't have uh, substantiated evidence and science backing them so in the event um, there was something discovered that could be uh that could be used to successfully fight this a vaccine whatever what have you who should people turn to to like as a credible source, like who would be the one to announce it? Who would back it? Would it be the World Health Organization, CDC?
1: Yeah. So, so there's many trials ongoing right now. Um, the physicians around the world are looking quite closely at these trials, um, and so the majority of physicians uh, are reading these less well done studies and saying, we're not gonna change our practice based on this. Um, there are some who are changing their practice based on, on those articles, um, but for the most part, people are not. Um, but it is creating a lot of pressure from patients who are asking for these medications when they see it being reported um, in, the, in the public um, by news media uh, and other other sources. Um, so, what I would say is, at the end of the day, trust your physicians um, uh, who are treating you. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of the trials. So, the biggest trial that's ongoing is is one called Solidarity. Uh, it's a worldwide trial being funded by the WHO, and it's looking at many different treatments all within one trial. Uh, that trial will be really helpful to know. Um, there are other trials that apparently have been conducted in China, um, but those have not been published. Uh, there's only been one well-done tr- uh, clinical trial of treatments, and that was looking at a different drug uh, called uh, Lipinavir, um, which was originally an HIV medication drug called Kalitra. Um, unfortunately, that trial, um, although the drug was promising in vitro, it didn't have um, good efficacy uh, in the patients with COVID, um, and, so, uh, and it did cause quite a bit of um, diarrhea, sometimes uh, very severe diarrhea, uh, which is a known side effect of the drug, um, and, but that one was actually very well done, and so a lot of people are no longer prescribing that drug it might still have benefit early in disease. So there was some hint that it might still help for the people who had less days of symptoms. And we don't know yet. More studies are are ongoing and other people are studying that drug
2: still. Wow. Wow. Well, Dylan, to start to, to wrap this up, I wanted to ask what, what is your one piece of advice to, you know, people listening, just regular folks, obviously stay inside, practice social distancing uh, wash your hands, cover your mouth. Is there anything else that we can do to protect ourselves from COVID-19? Yeah, so I'll just
1: I'll just finish with a couple points about messages that I want the general public to know. So first is just to, to highlight physical distancing and, and what that means. So it really means as much as possible interacting with no one uh, except the people you live with. So um, every time you leave your house, there's a risk of contracting the virus. Every time you get delivery, there's a risk. So the the more you can limit that, the better. Um, Obviously, we still need to to get our daily essentials, um, things like groceries, um, if you need medications, that kind of thing. But the more you can... Limit that. So buying groceries kind of two weeks at a time. Um, not seeing friends. Uh, even small uh, interactions with friends uh, can potentially spread this. Um, a lot of people are are out walking and running which normally would be great, um, but I'm actually quite worried about the volume of people out. So when you look at the the parks or the water, um, there are people very close together um, because there's too many people out. Um, And so uh, if you went for a walk with no one around, sure, that's safe. But if you're walking by people uh, every 30 seconds, then there's a risk of transmission there. So really being mindful of that and really trying to limit, especially for the next six to eight weeks. Uh, The second is if you have symptoms of any kind, then really you need no contact with anyone. Um, So uh, that means absolutely no going out, even for groceries. You need to find a way to have someone bring something to you. Um, uh, If your symptoms are severe, so you're having trouble breathing, you're coughing up blood, um, you're feeling like you're you're not doing okay then for sure go to the emergency room um but if you're feeling otherwise okay just stay at home for 14 days and um, so don't interact with anyone um and tr- as much as you can uh, use delivery services or friends to drop things off and don't interact with them um and that one's really key um and then in terms of help um so there's the, the most wonderful thing to come out of all of this is really the sense of um, Collegiality—the sense of togetherness—the um, entire world is, is united in some sense to, to fight against one, one thing, um, and so uh, the shows of support are, are extremely appreciated um, from uh, from healthcare workers and from other people who are who are still working throughout this. Uh, whether they be sanitation people, grocery workers. um, And so make sure you continue to show that support because it's going to be really important um, for places that are, especially as they become more and more hard hit. um, uh, And make sure you're keeping an eye out for others. So a lot of us who may be listening to this podcast are younger, lower risk. So make sure you're keeping in mind um, your older relatives, uh, your older neighbours. If you can pick up groceries and drop them at the door, and those are the kind of things that are going to save lives. Um, and uh, there was an anesthetist um, from uh, New Jersey who was talking uh, and her message was really interesting because we often call um, physicians frontline workers. Um, but in reality, this is the frontline is, is the public. Um, that's who needs to stop this. And that's who the power it's in. It's in your guys' hands. Um, we're really the last line. Um, and the hope is that. Uh, we can continue to, to battle us on on the front line of you guys. So,
0: Wow. I, I do have one, I guess, one other thing uh, that I want to add in. Mm-hmm. So near the beginning, you said one of the biggest things is as we start to approach, uh, you know, signs of light at the end of the tunnel, if you will, and, and we start to flatten this curve out, one of the important things is that not to let their guard down uh, because I guess until there's a cure, we're not really out of the woods. So what would you say? Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that once this starts to show signs of clearing up and and store restaurants start opening, you know, the ban is lifted on groups of five meeting together. Surely people are going to start to get excited and, you know, rush downtown for a drink with their friends and and go to the nearest restaurant to grab dinner. Um, I'm guessing that's not the best course of action coming out of this. Like, what advice do you have when things if and when they start to get better?
1: Yeah, so we, we have to be extremely careful of this, and the best example of that is, is the last time there was a global pandemic, uh, which was 1918-1919 with the Spanish flu. Um, the initial outbreak was short and uh, did kill millions of people, um, but it got better over the summer, um, especially influenza viruses. We don't know if this virus will re- respond the same way, but influenza viruses get better seasonally, as you probably know, um, and so it got a lot better. Um, but unfortunately it came back in the fall, um, of 1918 and then into the winter of 1919, uh, uh, and more people died in that second wave of illness. Um, uh, that's actually when the bulk of people died. So we do have to be very mindful that, uh, if things get better, we can't let our guard down until we have definitive control over this virus, which I think will be once there's a vaccine available, um... It's possible it could end before that, um, but but I think it will require a vaccine to really feel comfortable that this this is um,
2: behind us.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I Ricky, I don't know if you have anything else. Uh, I don't no, know. I'm
2: I'm good. I just uh, before we end up, I wanted to thank our sponsors for this episode, Ilberry and Goose. Uh, again, they sent us some products last week. They were uh, some awesome products. We'll post again online. Truly unique, entirely Canadian. So check them out. But yeah, Dylan. Honestly, thank you so much for coming on. This was so insightful, and I I hope that you know society can really come together and and we can flatten the curve and then hopefully eventually end this. Yeah, you
1: know, I think I think there's a lot of fear, but there's also a lot of optimism. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, uh, good that can still come out of this, despite all of the the suffering and hardship. Um, and so uh, I'm still encouraged by things, um, despite all of the the badness.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, listen, best of luck with all you're doing. And, and hopefully you, your team, and, and all the, you know, the doctors and, and people in infectious disease around the world can, can find a solution. Uh, but, yeah, we thank you for your time, Dylan, for taking time out of your busy day. And, um, yeah, good luck with everything.
2: No problem. Thank you for having Thanks. me. Thanks
1: again, Dylan. Okay. <laughs> all right. Signing Thanks. off, boys. Take care. Cheers. You like to drink and to smoke? Take away the pain, and I don't remember all of my mistakes, and every I got alone, but no one thing, you're not alright, I'm not
0: alright.